0: Please take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 13. Uh, We'll be reading the first 10 verses. I think the bulletin says all of chapter 13, but we're just going to read the first 10 verses this morning. Uh, If you were here last week, um, you remember what we looked at in chapter 12. Children, you remember the story, you remember the passage that... um, There are two characters in chapter 12. There's a a woman who is pregnant, and there's a great, fiery, red dragon. And as the woman is about to give birth, the the red dragon is standing right in front of her, uh, waiting to devour this child. And, And we saw that that was a picture of the devil's attacks against God's people all throughout redemptive history. When you read the Old Testament, you see that Satan does anything he can possibly do to keep the Messiah from coming into the world, but that doesn't work. Over and over, God preserves the line of the Messiah so that Jesus is born, but Satan doesn't give up. Satan then is going to use a man by the name of Herod to try to kill Jesus when he's an infant, but that doesn't work. Well, then Satan's going to try to use the cross to do away with Jesus. That seems to work. Jesus dies on the cross, and it seems like it's over. But that didn't work either. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's now at the right hand of the Father. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But Satan doesn't go down without a fight. Satan doesn't admit defeat Satan keeps going. Now he goes after the church. Now he fights against Christians. And and the, the story of the church all throughout church history is one of struggle and trial and hardship. And what chapter 13 is now going to show us is the two means that Satan tries to use to devour the church. He was waiting before the pregnant woman to devour the Messiah. That didn't work. Now, 1 Peter 5 tells us that he's seeking to devour us. And Revelation 13 helps us to see to the means that Satan uses in his attack against us. And so, this is a, an eminently practical chapter because it helps you to, to be on guard against those things that Satan will seek to use. To destroy you. So Revelation 13, we're going to look at the first means this morning. The second means, Lord willing, next Sunday. But let's read Revelation 13, 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Back in the um, late 1980s and early 1990s, that was a long time ago, children, that was, that was another century. Uh, back then, books on spiritual warfare were very popular. Maybe you read fictional accounts like um, This Present Darkness or Piercing the Darkness or books like that. And, and some of them were kind of out there. They kind of went a little too far. But, but those books were very helpful in reminding the church in that day that we are in a spiritual warfare. There is a spiritual battle that is going on. I think, though, there is a sense today in which we've become somewhat ignorant to that, maybe. Ignorant to the fact that, that we are in a very real spiritual battle. Maybe it's the, the freedoms that we still have in this country. Uh, maybe it's the material blessings and prosperity that we enjoy. But, but whatever the case, it, it seems like the American church has failed to realize, in, in many senses, the very real battle that we are in. I would imagine that our fellow Christians in places like China and Indonesia and North Korea and places like that maybe recognize a little bit more than we do that we are in a spiritual battle as Christians. God doesn't want us to be unaware of this. This is why he tells us, for example, in Ephesians 6... We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are in a battle. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we feel it or not, we are in a very real battle. And the question we want to ask this morning is, is what are Satan's tactics in this war? You know that if you are to fight a battle, you need to know your opponent. That this is true in, in war, this is true in sports, this is true in many areas of life. If, if you are to fight well, you need to know what you're fighting against. What does Satan use as he seeks to devour and destroy the church? Ouija boards? Tarot cards? Seances, is those the kind of things that, that Satan uses. We, we might tend to think that the devil uses the so-called dark arts. He, he uses evil stuff like that. But those things aren't found here in Revelation 13. We are told here about two beasts. And these two beasts are the two things that Satan uses in his attempts To devour the church of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the first beast this morning, and there are three things that we want to look at. First of all, is the identity of the beast. Who is this beast? Secondly, there is the power of the beast. And then third, there is the work of the beast the identity, the power, and the work of the beast. This is another one of these somewhat scary chapters. This is another one of these somewhat intimidating chapters. Um, It it starts by John seeing a beast rising out of the sea. Now remember the sea is an image of um, turmoil and evil and chaos. This beast is rising out of the sea. The beast has ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns, and blasphemous names on his heads. Now if you're going... I think I've heard this language somewhere before. You would be right. Because back in chapter 12, last week we saw this, verse 3, the dragon is described in a very, very similar way. As we saw last week, the the dragon is a symbol of the devil. And so it would appear that that this first beast is somehow connected to the devil. That this first beast is, is empowered by and sent by the devil. And so again this beast is one of the devil's agents in his attacks against you, in his attacks against the church. We are then told, if you look at verse 2, that the beast is like a leopard, he has feet like a bear's feet, and he has mouth like a lion's mouth. Now, this doesn't seem too helpful at first in helping us understand who this beast is, but the fact of the matter is... There's a very strong Old Testament connection here. Take your Bibles, if you have one with you, and turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. We'll see who this beast is. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is um, right after the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a very big book, easy to find, kind of in the middle of the Bible. To the right of Ezekiel is the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. If you've read through Daniel before, you might remember that there's a certain point in which Daniel has a vision of four beasts. And that's in Daniel chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 4. Daniel 7 verse 4. The first beast was like a lion. Verse 5. The second beast was like a bear. Verse 6, the third beast was like a leopard. This is exactly what John sees in Revelation 13. The beast is like a leopard, a bear, and a lion. And then notice what Daniel sees in verse 7. He sees a fourth beast, and notice how it's described. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had, notice, ten horns. Just like the beast in Revelation 13. Now in Daniel 7, these four beasts represent four different world empires. Four godless, evil, wicked world empires. Babylon is the lion. uh, Persia is the bear. Greece is the leopard. And and Rome, the Roman Empire, is the terrifying fourth beast. And so you put all of this together. You take Revelation 13. You compare it to Daniel chapter 7. You put all of this together. And here's what we have in Revelation 13. This first beast is symbolic of godless, anti-Christian government. This beast is a symbol of governments that attempt to take the place of God by, by demanding the ultimate loyalty and allegiance of their subjects. So that's who this beast is. Now notice his power. Look at verse three. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. There's a connection here uh, to the Roman Empire of the first century. Most of you here this morning have probably heard of the name Nero before. Nero was a, um, well, he was a very bad man. He was um, the Roman emperor for about uh, 14 years, from 54 A.D. to about 68 A.D., He was one of the most evil, evil figures of the first century world. He was notorious for putting to death anyone who got in his way. Anyone who was an attempt attempted to take power from Nero, or anyone whom he suspected might take his power, he would just kill him. He had his own mother killed. He he killed one of his wives by repeatedly kicking her in the stomach when she was pregnant. This is a very, very bad man. He was very much opposed to Christianity. He hated Christians. In 64 AD, he had been emperor for about 10 years, there was a a devastating fire that burned much of Rome. And, And many people believe that Nero was the man who set the fire. He had someone set the fire. But, but he claimed it was the Christians who did it. He wanted to throw them under the bus, and, and because of this, many Christians were arrested, charged with arson, and, and then they were either thrown to the wild animals, they were crucified, or they were lit on fire and killed. Well, finally, in 68 AD, when he was only 30 years old, because much of Rome was turning against him, Nero decided to take his own life. But he couldn't do it, and so he had his chief secretary put him to death, and Nero was dead. After 14 years of harassing the church and and blaming them for things they didn't do, 14 years of having Christians killed, finally this man was dead. And, And you can imagine, if you were a Christian living under that regime... Imagine that that your family members had been killed. Imagine that your parents had been killed. Imagine that your friends had been killed. Living under that regime for 14 years, you would say, finally, God has given us relief. It's going to make it easier for us to practice our faith now. Our longtime enemy, this man who has put so many of us to death, is now dead. To use the language of verse 3, it now appeared that the Roman Empire had suffered a mortal wound. But that was not the case. Between the time of Nero's death in 68 AD and the time when Revelation was written in 95 AD, a period of about 27 years, there were three emperors, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. And all of them were very much opposed to Christianity and the persecution continued. And so, what appeared to be a mortal wound, what appeared to be the the end of the persecution of Christians, what appeared to be that mortal wound had been healed. And the persecution continued on. The beast continued to rage against the church. It's almost like a counterfeit Jesus, right? It, It looks like the beast is dead, but it's not dead. It's been healed, it's been raised to life. And, and now people stand in awe of the beast. And, and they say in verse 4, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? You know, throughout history, government has often portrayed itself as our Messiah. Government has often portrayed itself as the one who has the power to save us. The one who is able to provide for, for all of our needs. And that's how many people view the government today. Government is our savior. Government is our provider. Government knows what is best for us. And some of the most wicked governments of history are those atheistic, communistic governments that have essentially said there is no God. There is no God. You don't need this mythical figure called God. You need us. We will provide for you. We will take care of you. We know what is best for you. But it's not real, it's it's not true. The government has, has always been and always will be a false messiah. It's like the old Ronald Reagan line where he said that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are I'm with the government and I'm here to help. Now, certainly God has ordained human government. Romans 13, Paul says that the the government is God's servant for our good. The the government is tasked with carrying out God's wrath on wrongdoers. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says that the government is called to to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. But unfortunately, uh, many of our politicians seem to have reversed God's design, haven't they? they they seem more likely to praise those who do evil and punish those who do good but again government is not bad in and of itself it's god's institution it's god's design for our good and our well-being but but here's the thing we must never forget god or government is not our savior government is not our savior and and throughout human history, we have seen how Satan has used this beast, how he has used wicked governments and wicked civil leaders to, to harass and to punish and to persecute God's people. And here, John is telling us, this is what you can expect. This is what you can expect. And so we have the identity of the beast, we have the power of the beast, and then there is the work of the beast. Notice what John says in verse five. He says, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. The beast speaks haughty and blasphemous words. Children, that word haughty means proud. Maybe you've, um, maybe you've met people before who think that they're better than everyone else. Who think that they know everything, who, who think that they have their act together and, and everyone should be like them, who who think that they always know what is best. That's exactly what we often see in governments, that Satan will use the government to tell us we know what is best, we know what is right, and, and really it's hard to think of a more fitting word to describe these kinds of governments than haughty, proud, arrogant. We're going to tell you what's best. You need to follow us. You need to get in line with us because we know what is right. During COVID, the government told us that strip clubs and marijuana dispensaries were more important than the church, didn't they? Remember when Gavin Newsom went out to a $400 a plate dinner and told you you couldn't see your relatives? Haughty. The government knows what is right. The government knows what you need. Today the government says to us, we will tell you what to believe about gender. We will tell you what to believe about marriage. After all, we're smarter than you. And, and that Bible of yours that you claim tells you what is true, that's, that's old-fashioned nonsense. It's out of date. Haughty. And often the law doesn't apply to them, but it does apply to us. Haughty. The word blasphemous just refers to their posture against God, posture against God's truth, against God's people. Do we find support today when we stand up and when we say abortion is murder? Blatant, premeditated murder. What do we hear? You Christians are so bigoted and so narrow-minded and so old-fashioned. Much of what goes on in the civil realm today blasphemes the name of God. Now, we're told, notice that this beast is allowed to do this for a period of 42 months. Now, at first, that sounds pretty good, only three and a half years of this. But, but remember what we saw last week 42 months is a symbol of the entire time between the ascension of Christ and his second coming. And so, John is telling us that, that we can expect to see wicked, anti God governments all throughout history. There will be no golden age where the church is free from tyranny and from persecution. Now brothers and sisters, this doesn't mean that, that we just sit by idly and and as Christians we just throw up our hands and say, well there's nothing we can do. God told us it would be like this and so, hey, just going to let it be. We saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 11, we have every reason to be confident and bold in our witness. We have every reason to, to proclaim the truth of God with courage. We have every reason to, to speak truth into the darkness of our society. We should pray that, that Christians would get involved in the civil realm. We should pray for, for godly, wise politicians who will not let evil run rampant. And we should be united against government policies that are haughty and that blaspheme the name of God. Amen. Sadly, though, as we saw a couple weeks ago, there's a sense in which Eric Metaxas, who wrote the book Letter to the American Church, is right that, that we are paralyzed, that we are silent, that maybe we don't want to offend, and so we say Nothing. Now, make no mistake about it, Satan and the beast will continue to war against the church. If you look at verse 7, it says, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. There are times in history when it looks like Satan and the beast have won, when it, when it looks like the, the, the dragon has won. Now, the dragon may not have kept the Messiah from coming. The dragon may not have killed Jesus right after he was born. The dragon may not have kept Jesus from rising from the dead. But but for all intents and purposes, he's done the next best thing. He's used godless, wicked governments to triumph over the church. and, And it appears that he has done so. And there have been times in history... When, when it looks like the light of the gospel has, has just about been extinguished. that the beast has won. Let me give you an example from the 16th century. There was a, a woman named Mary Tudor. We know her as Bloody Mary. Mary Tudor was a Queen of England from 1553 to 1558. Five years. She did everything in her power to destroy the Protestant church. In 1553, she had over 300 men, women, and children put to death, either through beheading or through lighting them on fire. 300 men, women, and children who would not give up their Protestant faith, who would not recant the gospel, she killed them. Two of these martyrs were two pastors. One was named Nicholas Ridley, and one was named Hugh Latimer. And they spent months in a prison cell for preaching the gospel and eventually they were brought to Oxford for their trial. And at their trial they were told to recant their beliefs. They were told, swear allegiance to the Pope, recant your beliefs about the gospel, confess your heresies, and we'll let you live. But Latimer and Ridley refused to do that. They said, We don't care what you do to us, we will not give up the gospel. They refused to recant. And so, Bloody Mary ordered their execution on October 16th, 1555. They were brought to the town center of Oxford and they were given one last chance recant or die. But they refused. Two guards took these two pastors and they tied them to the stake. And they took straw and they took wood and they surrounded those two pastors with straw and wood and they lit it on fire. And it's at that point that Latimer turned to Ridley and he said these famous words. He said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England that will never be put out. And that's exactly what happened. Three years later, at the age of 42, Bloody Mary died. And the gospel continued to spread all throughout England. Dozens and dozens and dozens of more examples could be given. Times when it looked like the dragon and the beast had won. Times when it looked like the gospel light had been extinguished, that the church was done. But it was not to be the case. No one and nothing can triumph over God's kingdom. No one and nothing can snuff out the light of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we will face this beast. And this beast will demand our allegiance. This beast will tell us that that he knows what we need and he knows what's best for us and he's smarter than us and get in line with him and Satan will use this beast of godless government to seek to persecute the church of Jesus Christ but know and believe that the gospel will never ever be extinguished. The church will never be defeated. And what seems like a a very dark passage and a very discouraging passage ends with a certain level of encouragement for us. And I want you to notice two things that that should empower us as a church and as Christians to to endure the attacks of the beast. Notice the first one in verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Notice that phrase written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. The encouragement this morning, Christian, your name is in that book. Your name is in that book. And the encouragement this morning is very simply to remember to whom you belong. You don't belong to the dragon. You don't belong to the beast. You belong to the one who was slain. You belong to the one who shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins and so that you would live forever with him. I want to encourage you this morning that when you feel weighed down and when you feel discouraged and when you feel hopeless by the godlessness of this world, and and who of us doesn't feel that? Who of us doesn't feel the, the burden and the weight of living in a godless world? When you feel that way, remember who you are. You don't belong to the beast. You don't belong to the dragon. The beast is not your savior. Jesus is your savior. You belong to him. And there's nothing that the dragon or the beast will ever do to change that. So that's the first encouragement this morning. If you're a believer in Christ, remember to whom you belong. Now, if you're not a believer, the call this morning is to confess your sin And run to Christ. But as believers, we know we belong to him, not to the beast. And then secondly, notice verses 9 and 10. It says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. And so what it's saying is if you're supposed to be taken captive, you're going to be taken captive. If you're supposed to be slain with a sword, you're going to be slain with a sword. The point, I think, is this. If and when you suffer in this life, if and when you are persecuted for your faith, remember who is sovereign. Remember who is directing and orchestrating all things to their perfect end. Remember that God is in control And that there is nothing that the dragon or the beast can do that is outside of the control of God. I don't know about you, but that's very comforting to me. As I look at the moral filth of our world today, I can be rest assured, I can trust that God is in control. Here in this passage, God gives us a a very realistic picture of what we can expect in this world. It's not all roses, it's not all happiness. We can expect people to hate us. We can expect people to want to silence us. We can expect hostility when we stand for the truth. We can expect that Satan will try to use wicked governments to silence the church and to devour the church. But children, who is on the throne of heaven right now? God. Not the dragon, not the beast, but God. And in the end, who will win? God and his kingdom. I have here, and I don't think too many of you can see it all that well, but I have here a a very visible reminder that haughty and blasphemous kingdoms will eventually fade away. This is a piece of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall was a structure that was built over 60 years ago by those who thought that they could dominate this world through their great power and who thought that they could forever silence Christianity. But in the end, God crushes all of these kingdoms. In the end, God brings these kingdoms to nothing. And he leaves them in ruins. Jesus always wins. As fearful as we may be as we look at the beast's And the beast we will see next week. Remember that the kingdom of God will never be defeated. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you give to us in your word a a very helpful reminder of what we can expect. That we can expect persecution, we can expect hostility, we can expect opposition. Well, Lord, we are comforted this morning to know, first of all, that you are in control. We are comforted in knowing that we belong to you, and we are comforted to know that your kingdom will never be defeated, that you will ultimately smash to pieces all the kingdoms of this world. Father, help us to be faithful witnesses of yours. Help us to speak the truth. Help us to do it with love and with respect but help us not to shrink back from declaring the truth of your word and the good news that Jesus saves. Use us, Lord.